Hello, this is for the Love of Film podcast. I'm your host, Scott David Chase. I just got out of a movie, which is often the case with this podcast. Um, So I'm going to talk about four movies today. Um, The one I just got out of was Red Sparrow, but I'm also going to talk about seeing um, Death Wish, uh, the, the new version of Death Wish, and uh, the classic Jim Henson, Frank Oz film The Dark Crystal, which I got to see on the screen this week, and also Duncan Jones's new film Mute, which this is the, that's the first film uh, that I've talked about on this podcast that I didn't see in the theater because it was, uh, it was released exclusively to Netflix, but um, I thought it was worth talking about. Um, also, it, so today is March... Fifth, it's the day after the 90th Academy Awards ceremony, the Oscars. I watched them last night at a family friend's house and with my mother and my stepfather because I don't have cable television, uh, nor do I really watch it, and neither did my mom and stepdad, so we went to our friend Deb's house and watched it. Um... So The Shape of Water won Best Picture, which was actually what I had hoped would win. It also, Guillermo del Toro also won for Best Director, which was great. Um, um, Definitely deserving of that. Some people have, you know, there's, in this day and age, there's always some, no, no matter what happens in the news or entertainment, these days it seems like someone's complaining about the outcome and they said, you know, it's not a relevant movie or it wasn't an important movie, you know, Get Out should have won or Three Billboards or and, you know, uh, most of the films uh, that were nominated for Best Picture this year I felt were certainly very worthy films. I saw eight out of the nine nominees. I didn't see Dunkirk yet. Um, And, you know, most of them were excellent films. Some of them were pretty good films, but obviously one of them has to win. And uh, I don't think the best picture film always has to be a political or a quote-unquote message movie. Um, You know, Shape of Water is a fairy tale, but it's um, it also, to me, really examines what it means to be human and what, uh, you know, the different aspects of what love could be, and that is, you know, never goes out of style, and, you know, 50 years from now, um, when the politics of the right here and right now have kind of dissipated, and um, hopefully we've made improvements in a lot of the areas that need improvement, you know, uh, some of the more political films might not be remembered, but I think this is truly a timeless film. So, you know, those, that's my two cents from, uh, you know, an armchair movie critic in New Hampshire. Uh, it was interesting because all four of the acting winners were people who I like and thought the performances were great in varying degrees, but none of them were the ones that I was hoping would win. Uh, Sam Rockwell won for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. 
Um, love Sam Rockwell and thought he did a good job, but I was really hoping this would be Willem Dafoe's year. Um, Allison Janney uh, beat out Laurie Metcalf. Uh, I mean, she, she beat out four other actresses, but I was really hoping um, that uh, Laurie Metcalf would win. Um, but again, I'm a big Allison Janney fan, um, and they basically played, you know, different variations on, um, difficult mothers, uh, who have, who their daughters were the protagonists of the film, and, uh, you know, Allison Janney's role, certainly a little bit more flashy than Laurie Metcalf's, but, uh, who's to say why the voters vote the way they did? Also, Gary Oldman won for his portrayal of Winston Churchill. That film also won Best Makeup, and, Rightfully so, because they transformed Gary Oldman into, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, who's physically very different from him. Um, and Francis McDormand won for three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which I don't think her performance was the best one of the year, but it was certainly an excellent one. However, she gave an incredibly relevant an impassioned speech about, uh, you know, showing support for female actors, writer, directors, cinematographers, all down the line, not by showering them with praise, but by giving them jobs. So, uh, you know, it was a very rousing and important speech. So that was, uh, that was, uh, pretty, pretty moving to see. Um, yeah, overall it was kind of, I mean, it was, it's a weird year with the politics, with the, uh, Me Too movement, uh, for an awards ceremony. And, you know, it was handled fairly well, but you know, it was a somewhat joyless, um, ceremony, but, uh, I've been watching the Oscars since, since I was in high school, uh, I think I've missed maybe two years in, you know, 27, 28 years watching it. So, uh, uh, glad I get to see it. So, um, so I guess I'll go from, uh, ascending order for the films that I watched this week. So the first film I'm going to talk about, uh, like I said, is, not a film I saw in the theater. I watched it on Netflix, and, you know, right now I don't even have a television hooked up, so I'm watching it on a little uh, two-inch by three-inch screen on my phone, uh, which was uh, Duncan Jones' new film, Mute. Um, Duncan Jones, uh, for those of you who don't know, he is uh, one of the two children of the late David Bowie. Uh, You know, he he, um, he made an excellent film with Sam Rockwell, uh, I believe in 2009, called Moon. Certainly worth investigating. Um, smart science fiction. Um, and, you know, this movie is a little bit of a spiritual sequel to it, as he's described. Um, uh, Sam Rockwell's character even has a small re- reappearance in Mute. Um, 
Duncan Jones is one of those guys, you know, he was, he was on Mark Maron's podcast a couple of weeks ago and that's how I found out about this project. Um, and he always gives really interesting interviews. Um, he seems like a incredibly intelligent, passionate filmmaker. And, um, you know, two summers ago, hearing him on a different podcast, um, I believe it was the Nerdist podcast, uh, got me to, you know, somewhat excited to see the Warcraft film that he directed and had a hand in writing, and it was a real passion project of his, and unfortunately it was a horrible film, just a huge budget CG nightmare action turd, and, uh, you know, uh, like I said, Moon is an excellent film, his second film, Source Code, I have some friends who swear by it, and I did see it years ago, but it did not leave an impression on me one way or another, so I'll have to revisit it at some point, but the problem is, you know, Mute was not, it was another film that was not good. Um, I, I would say it was borderline terrible. I mean, it was well-crafted enough. Uh, it, it's this weird thing where it's, uh, so it was a Netflix exclusive Netflix bought it and uh, ever since Stranger Things was a hit for Netflix uh, you know an original series for Netflix and it became a hit um, they've seemed to have been been uh, letting a lot of filmmakers a lot of comedians they're, they're throwing out a lot of Netflix exclusive content it seems like almost every day there's a new, exclusive Netflix movie or special, and, um, most of it is mediocre at best, um, you know, a lot of these creators out on the publicity circuit are talking about how they're given kind of, uh, complete creative freedom and making these things, and, you know, as an artist myself, uh, a, a lot of artists always clamor for complete creative freedom. And I understand that, but I also feel like having some parameters, have some, having some checks and balances actually produces greater art when there are limitations. Um, we're forced to get more creative and, uh, you know, streamline. Not that I'm saying that, you know, all censorship, you know, censorship is great and necessary, but I do think, um, having some reins on a project, um, have resulted in incredible pieces of work. Um, the The movie Mute is very visually derivative of Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner. Um, it looks really solid. Uh, there's a lot of digital effects as far as, you know, like computer screens and stuff like that that work fairly well. The, my biggest problem with it is, first of all, the character of Leo, the protagonist, played by Alexander Skarsgård, um, is just not compelling at all. You don't really get a sense of him at all, and he's... He kind of comes off as really stupid. And, um, you know, early on it's introduced, he's got the character of this girlfriend, and then she disappears and he spends most of the movie looking for her and they supposedly have this great everlasting love, but there was really no chemistry between them. Uh, I mean, 
mainly because Alexander Skarsgård's character is just, there's, I didn't connect with him at all. He is, he is, as the title indicates, he is mute. He doesn't speak. Um, uh, you know, the opening scene shows a childhood accent, why he can't speak. And it kind of, uh, it, it's, it's an often clunky device to bring, to carry the narrative along. Um, the other thing is there's, there's this weird mash, uh, in the Robert Altman film mash, uh, tribute, um, between Paul Rudd and Justin Theroux's characters. I mean, um, he, early on Justin Theroux even says to Paul Rudd's character, man, you've really got eyes like a hawk, um, indicating, you know, calling him Hawkeye essentially. And, uh, you know, Justin Theroux's sort of his Trapper John, uh, and it's a it's a weird relationship, and both of the characters are kind of dark and menacing in their own right. They're the both of them are unpleasant characters, and um, I mean, it was interesting certainly to see Paul Rudd play a dark type of character like that, but. Um, you know, it just, uh, a, uh, there was a fair amount of promise, uh, in, in the film, but just ultimately it went nowhere and the narrative is not interesting. And I, the character that Paul Rudd played deserves to be in a better film. He was definitely the most memorable character in a, uh, film of mostly unmemorable characters. And, uh, you know, uh, I I don't know if I'd ever watched, thought I'd watch a science fiction film where uh, Paul Rudd was the most interesting and compelling performance, but that was the case. So if you haven't seen it, you know, if you're a huge sci-fi fan, you might want to check it out. But I, I will tell you, I think it's it's pretty boring. I had to watch it in 15-minute increments over the space of about a week and a half, and... Um, uh, I would give Mute about four out of ten stars. So the next film I saw was Eli Roth's um, new take on the 1974 Charles Bronson film Death Wish, uh, this time starring Bruce Willis. Um, and it was written by Joe Carnahan, who's has a couple of films, Narc and Smoking Aces, that I... Uh, enjoy the kind of guilty pleasures. They're not the smartest films in the world, but they are uh, kind of tough action movies. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, originally, Death Wish was supposed to come out in November of 2017, and it was pushed back because of a mass shooting. And uh, it was released, you know, in March, um, and it was unfortunately. 10 days after the Florida Parkland shootings, mass shootings. And, um, I mean, this is obviously a problem in the United States because we keep having mass shootings and, um, I'm not going to get into the political side of that, but, um, you know, it, this film touched on vigilante justice and sort of made a mockery of how easy it was to get, um, so-called assault weapons, 
Um, you know, Bruce Willis is a man whose family is a victim of a robbery and uh, the robbery gone wrong, turned into a homicide, and he ends up getting vengeance on those who hurt his family. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really take a stand either way, but it does let a vigilante kind of off the hook. Ultimately, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's somewhat, you know, a little bit reminiscent of, uh, you know, Bruce Willis's uh, diehard character, John McClane, um, uh, in, the, in, in the 2010s, um, but... Uh, those Die Hard and a lot of the big action movies that Bruce Willis became famous for uh, came about in the 80s, and it is certainly a different time now. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm not one to say that, you know, art inspires these violent actions. It's I think that's being lazy on the part of uh, the NRA. Um letting them off the hook for certain things. But I just feel like the time has passed for a lot of these mindless, uh, white, white, uh, vengeance movies. Um, I mean, just how frail and old and afraid Bruce Willis looked in this film is kind of indicative of where these types of movies are in 2018. Um, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, I don't see the need for it at all for this, for this film. I don't know why we needed to see it. I, I don't know how it's doing. It's, it's been out about five days, uh, or four days. Um, obviously if it does well, I'm sure they'll do a sequel to it. Uh, but you know, it was just sort of by the numbers. Uh, it wasn't a terrible film, and it certainly wasn't a great film. It was just a film, and uh, yeah, I would get you know I would give Death Wish. Uh, I almost said Die Hard. Uh, I would give Death Death Wish a five out of ten. So the next one I just got out of Red Sparrow, um, which is uh, you know. It, it's a better film than I was expecting it to be. It's a new film starring Jennifer Lawrence as a, you know, Russian uh, intelligence operative acting. Uh, you know, it's, you know, there's double crosses and triple crosses. It's an espionage film. Um, uh, my friend Greg always talks about Jennifer Lawrence always playing the same character. This is definitely a different character for her. Um, you know, her, her Russian accent's pretty thick, but I, you know, I know she did work with a dialect coach. It, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't as distracting as I thought it would be. Um, but, and like I said, this was a better film than I expected it to be. Um, uh, a lot of great performances, uh, Jeremy Irons in particular, um, you know, Joel Edgerton, uh, not, not an exceptional actor, but always a serviceable actor was fine in it. And, uh, there's some twists and turns in this movie that I, a couple that I did see coming, but, uh, an, another couple that I didn't see coming. Um, it 
definitely, there's a couple parts uh, that made me anxious, you know, where someone almost gets caught and stuff like that. So that's, uh, that's a sign that I was at least emotionally invested in the movie while I was watching it. So that's always a good sign too. So it's, you know, it's a, um, it's a popcorn spy thriller, uh, but a well-crafted one. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it more than I expected it, expected to. I would give it a, um, I would give it a solid seven out of 10. Uh, if you like spy movies, it'll, uh, you know, it'll certainly, uh, deliver on that, <clears throat> on that, uh, end. And then the last film that I saw, uh, saw on Saturday, um, it's a Monday right now, so a couple days ago, was The Dark Crystal, which The Dark Crystal is my absolute favorite film of all time. Um, you know, I saw it in the theater in uh, 1983 as a child and have been kind of enamored with it ever since. Not kind of, I've been very enamored with it. Um, it's, for those not familiar, it was, uh, it's directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz and it was, the, it was kind of a turning point for the Henson company because it was, um, a, you know, a non-Muppet movie um you know it's it is all puppets but it's not the muppets from the muppet show in sesame street that, that they're known for uh it is a you know a darker a fantasy world there are no humans in it at all it's all puppets and you know it took many years um for them to make it um you know brian froud uh well-known English illustrator did the production design for it and it's just beautiful and you know it holds up uh I've seen it many many times since seeing it in the theater as a kid but this is the first time I'd seen it since 1983 um in the theater and it was really cool to see it I it, the viewing itself I would knock a point just because the it the, the reason it was released in the theaters is there's a new 35th anniversary DVD coming out uh, tomorrow, actually. Um, a new 4K transfer with some minor new bonus features. Uh, basically an introduction by Lisa Henson, Jim Henson's daughter, talking briefly about the production. and um, uh, But they showed that before this screening, so I don't... You know, I'm a fan of those features, but I'm, I can't see buying it again for that. Uh, but the, my biggest ding about it was the, the transfer, the, you know, the print of the film that we saw did not look like it was cleaned up at all. Um, uh, not a horrible print, but definitely there were scratches and it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't as pretty as I was expecting it to be for this special event. So, um, but that doesn't take away from the original film. It looks the way I, it looked when I was a kid. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, if you haven't seen The Dark Crystal, if you're an adult listening to this, which I'm assuming if you're listening to a podcast, you're not a child listening to a podcast, but who knows. Um, if you've never seen The Dark Crystal, it's tough to say if an adult coming into it the first time is going to appreciate it the same way that a child would, but you know, it's, it's incredibly, it's, it's a beautiful world, um, done completely with puppetry. And the amazing thing is there's no computer generated, uh, images. Uh, this was all, everything is done on screen or in camera. 
uh, just because of the way, you know, they didn't have those effects 35 years ago, and a lot of the mechanical effects that came in the ensuing years were as a result of uh, the Henson Company's work on this film. Um, and there is a Netflix original series starting, I believe, at the end of this year. It's a 10-part Dark Crystal prequel, so I'm looking forward to that. Sort of hesitant uh, because it is such a important part of my childhood, and hopefully they do it right, but uh, I'm tentatively excited for that. So, uh, yeah, but if you haven't seen The Dark Crystal, absolutely I would recommend it. I would give it a, a, a 10 out of 10. Um, one, just one of the most beautiful, visually beautiful films I've ever seen. So thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.